In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in his fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. 
and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You know, back in September, at the beginning of September, we started this series, our annual theme of living by faith. We, the first message in this series was from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Let's read it out loud together. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This passage, the very first sentence of the Apostles' Creed, which says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. These two things, right from the get-go, put before us the importance of understanding creation and God's role in creation to the development of our faith. If we don't get the beginning portions right, then our faith is going to be skewed. It's going to be warped in some way. So this morning, we start in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. And immediately when we read this chapter, we are bombarded and assaulted with questions that our modern society levies against this chapter. You know, where are the dinosaurs? Are we supposed to interpret this literally or figuratively or metaphorically? Was there actually, you know, this, this time where nothing existed and everything was created out of nothing? You mean even matter wasn't there? And in, in some way, did God use maybe evolution in order to bring all this about? These are all questions that are interesting but they aren't the right questions to be asking of this passage if we're going to understand how this passage applies to us living by faith, which is so obviously important. Without faith, we cannot please God. We cannot walk with God. So we're gonna be in Genesis chapter one through Genesis chapter 11 between now and Christmas time. And this period of time is called primeval history. In other words, the period of time from nothing at all up to the patriarchs, the beginning of the patriarchs, which would be Abraham, beginning in chapter 12. And these stories and the chapters, you know, some of them are obvious why they're there and, and why they're important to our faith. But honestly, there are things in these passages and in these chapters that you just kind of scratch your head and say, why is that even in the Bible? What does that have to do with our, our faith? So where we are this morning, Genesis chapter one, it's foundational. And we've got to ask the right questions of this passage. And so that's going to be kind of our framework by way of an outline this morning. We're going to ask four questions of this passage. The first question, you probably already know what it is because we ask it about almost every passage of scriptures. Anybody know what it is? Yeah, some of you got it. What's the context? What does the context of this passage teach us? Church, we always have to put scripture in context. A text not put in context is nothing more than a pretext to say whatever you want to say. Okay, And so it's important that we always do this. And when we think about the context of Genesis 1, we have a historical context and we have a literary context. The historical context we understand. 
Uh, We know it. Uh, The author, Moses, right? He has led the Israelites out of Egypt in the Exodus for 400 years. They are slaves in Egypt in horrendous conditions. During that time, the people, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac, which, which Lauren talked about in her children's story this morning, they have forgotten the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their faith is very corrupted, very polluted. They have been raised in a thoroughly pagan environment filled with multi, the idea of multiple gods being worshipped. They leave Egypt kicking and screaming. If you're familiar with the story, the Israelites just gave Moses holy hell. Within the first year, he was bald. Okay, no, I don't know about that part, but it was bad, okay? And, it, and what you see in the Old Testament was over a 40-year period of time, right? These Israelites are rebellious and cantankerous and stiff that it's so bad. That ultimately God says, because of your obedience and rebellion, all the adults who I brought out of slavery in Egypt, and I told you that you know the promised land, the, this wonderful land that I have prepared for you is going to be your new home, you don't get to go there. Sorry. You, you know, that's it. You're going to die in the wilderness. And so during that 40 years of just sitting in the wilderness waiting for this generation to die, Moses begins to write what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. He's writing to really for the benefit of this next generation, the children who are going to grow up, and they're being called upon to go into the promised land, to conquer this land filled with strong cities and warlike people and aggressive cultures, and they're afraid. Naturally so. Their life has been, you know, I mean, face it. Imagine being born and living in a, in a destitute wilderness for the first dec- few decades of your life. You've known nothing but chaos and deprivation. It's been hard. And you're filled with fear and anxiety, thinking about going into this land and taking on kingdoms that are more powerful, that are ferocious and evil. And what about their gods? Are their gods stronger than your God? This God that you really don't know all that much about except there's this presence and there's this guy Moses over here telling us what we need to believe. How do we know that we even trust him? And so these passages like Genesis 1 are meant to help these Israelites with these fears and anxieties. That's the historical context. The literary context is, is, and I'm saying the literary context, I could say the textual context. I want to maybe right from the outset establish something. Um, as, a, as our church, as a, a Reformed church, and I personally, I believe that all of the Bible, including Genesis chapter 1 through 11, is inspired by God, and it is therefore absolutely true and authoritative for our lives. God loves us. He communicates to us through His Word everything that He wants us to know about Him and about life. He tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting and training in righteousness. The man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Over 1,600 years, God communicated through more than 40 different authors so that the Bible could be composed and we could receive His divine word for us. Peter, the 
the first apostle, so to speak, of Jesus, tells us that above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture, in other words, no message from the prophets, no book within the Bible, like Jeremiah, Isaiah, the Gospels, no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. I I appreciate the strong stance conservative Christianity and Christians and churches like our own have taken when it comes to the inspiration, the inerrancy, the infallibility of Scripture. However, it has unintentionally and inadvertently led, in some cases, to an oversimplification of our faith which then does not stand the scrutiny of genuine questions that skeptics of Christianity have. For example, I was raised in a, in a, a religious heritage, a church heritage, my uh, Christian university, my seminary, where we were given an approach to interpreting the Scripture. We were encouraged with a little statement. Here's how it went. If the literal sense makes good common sense, Seek no other sense. Got that? If the literal sense makes good common sense, seek no other sense. And at first, that sounds really good. However, when you apply it to certain passages of Scripture, just blindly applying it, for example, to Genesis chapters 1 through 11, you end up with God creating the universe in 4004 B.C. That's what you end up with. Why? Because we know from contemporary history when certain events like battles between the Egyptians and the Hittites occurred. We know the dates of those events, and the Bible also has those events in them. And so working from a fixed point, if you literalistically interpret the genealogies of the Bible from that fixed point in time, you end up with 4004 B.C., And then that gives you all kinds of problems because the great pyramids of Egypt were built in 3000 BC. And we know the Mesopotamian and Sumerian and the Egyptian and the Hittite cultures have millions of people in them. Are we saying that just a few hundred years before the pyramids were created, the flood occurs wiping everybody out so that one family somehow in just a few hundred years produces millions of people? That's just, in, that's, that's, the math doesn't add up. It's crazy. The, the problem with this approach by conservative Christians is really no different than the approach by the agnostic or the skeptic whose religion is science. Both approaches are disregarding the intent of the author and the style of writing or the genre of literature that Moses uses in this case to communicate his event. And so as a result, we end up reading these kinds of passages through lenses that have incredible biases and presuppositions. We come to the text asking questions of it that it was never intended to answer. So the skeptic will then, by doing this, he concludes, "Ah, it's just all a fable. It's a myth. You can't believe any of this stuff. And when the Christian comes to passages like this in this literalistic manner, 
he ends up making conclusions that are, are so incredulous, it actually validates the accusations of the non-Christian skeptic that says Christians are just mindless rubes whose faith is completely irrational. But church, when we read the Bible as it was intended to be read, we will end up with neither an anti-religious science nor an anti-scientific religion. We will find that religious truth and scientific truth, religious truth and historical truth are simply two sides of the same coin when we read it the way it was intended to be read. Tim, Tim Keller writes, the way to respect the authority of the biblical writers is to take them as they want to be taken. Sometimes they want to be taken literally. Sometimes they don't. We must listen to them, not impose our thinking and agendas on them. So the context is this, Moses is writing to Israelites. They are afraid, they are anxious, they are filled with worry, their lives have been chaotic and hard, and the future looks even more chaotic and harder, and they are concerned. They do not have the scriptural, biblical faith that they need to, to experience what is to come, and so this is what he is doing in Genesis beginning in Genesis chapter 1. So the second question, if we understand the context, what is the goal of this passage of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1? Christians and non-Christians alike come to Genesis 1 with the how questions of the scientist and the when questions of the historian. And this is not the purpose or the intent of Moses. He does not, his goal is not to inform the Israelites on the how and the when of creation. He's focused on the who of creation. He's focused on the why of creation and the other things that we read in this primeval section. The Israelites, like we Christians today, needed their faith firmly established in order to experience God's best for them and for God's plan to be worked through their lives. But their faith was weak while their fears were very, very strong. Their fears were grounded in a false worldview and an untrue theology. They were asking, would Ra, the Egyptian sun god, empower the Egyptians to come, perhaps, and to recapture them and take them into slavery. They were asking whether or not the local gods in Canaan, like Baal, would overcome their god and continue to protect these strong cities. Or perhaps it was the fact that the Babylonians had their supreme god, Marduk, and their own stories, like the Enuma Elish epic, that has a lot of parallels to Genesis chapters 1 to 11. Perhaps it's actually the Babylonian god, Marduk, who is the supreme god, and this god, Jehovah, that we've now been introduced to, he's one of the lesser gods, and he's not the most powerful. It's the other guy, Marduk. After all, you want to be on the side of the strongest one, right? <laughs> And so these are the things that Moses is answering. He's answering these fears, and he's 
bringing comfort to these Israelites by bringing before them the truth that Hebrews 11, 1 to 3 gets at, and, and it actually underpins the entirety of Scripture. It's that truth that the universe is God's creation, and everything in it belongs to Him. This is really just another way of saying what Lauren said to our children earlier this morning, right? Everything in the universe, that the universe is God's creation, and everything in it belongs to Him. The purpose, the goal, the intent of Moses is not scientific. It's not historical. It's not anthropological. The purpose of Genesis 1 is theological. It's telling us that our God is the creator, the creation, and everything that we see, everything that we know, everything that we have yet to discover in the future, it all belongs to Him. The cosmos is God's kingdom, and He's ruling over it. And because of that, there are ramifications to us. He's calling on us to obey Him, to glorify Him, to worship Him, to please Him with our lives. So we understand the context, we understand the intention of this section of Scripture. Now, how does Moses' message, how does he go about actually accomplishing the goal of bringing comfort and beginning to establish this primary theological truth in the hearts of the Israelites? Well, this is where we get into the text. He does it primarily, as we're going to see in this moment, through the content. As we walk through the verses, we can see what he's doing here. But I want to start first with just a, a quick word. We need to understand it. We need to know that Moses, he chooses a genre of writing, a style of writing. You know what I mean by genre, right? There's, there's prose, there's poetry, there's you know, all kinds of different categories of literature. Moses chooses a genre of writing with elements of composition within it that was immediately understandable to his audience. But honestly, we will struggle with. We'll struggle with it. Let me illustrate to you like this. This week, you guys got an, an email. And in that email, you basically said, hey, this weekend is daylight savings time. Okay? Now, immediately, we all know what that means for us. In the fall, that means, all right, an extra hour of sleep, right? And in the spring, okay, I'm going to be late to church. That's what it means, right? But let's just imagine for a second that, you know, you printed out that announcement, that email, and you stuffed it with your, you know, your things like we do. We pile things up. And, and in a few years, let's just pretend that in a few years, one of those asteroids that we're always being warned about that could be a planet killer actually veers off course and it slams into our planet and the complete devastation of our planet. Almost all human life is eradicated. Our civilizations are buried under water and sand and dirt and just a few survivors are there, you know? Robert Duvall's ship didn't blow it up and so we all get hit by the meteor, okay? And now let's fast forward. 4,000 years later, our descendants who have been taken back to the Stone Age are digging through the sand, the warm Florida sand, much like people did in the Mideast and Egypt and in Jordan. And lo and behold, they come across your piece of paper that says, this weekend, it's daylight savings time. What do you think they're going to conclude? Now, some of them are going to look at that and go, our forefathers thought that they could save daylight. How stupid is that? 
right? Somebody else is going to look at it and say, this is a, a metaphor for taking the light of God into the darkness of this world and making it a better place. And then the, the more literalistic are going to say, no, that's not it at all. Our forefathers were so advanced, they could capture daylight. And it was never dark in their world because they were able to save daylight for the dark times. You, of course, we know that. You get where I'm going with this? I mean, when, I, when we use this, this expression, there's all kinds of understood and implied meaning. We get where we're coming from. We don't have to explain it. We don't have to go into details, thinking about people 4,000 years ago. We don't do that at all. We just say, hey, it's daylight savings time. This is what's happening in this passage. Moses is copying a form of writing that was seen throughout the ancient, ancient Near East. It had been existent for 1,500 years or more before he was alive. And he's using this form of writing to communicate truth to these people who were very familiar with it. And he communicates this truth, this theological truth, and he communicates important facts that they needed to know. And they would immediately get it because that was their daylight savings time. But when we come along 4,000 years later, we go, is it metaphorical? Is it figurative? Is it literal? I mean, we don't, we don't have the backstory, guys. And that's important for us to understand because if we don't, we're going to draw really bad conclusions from a passage like this. So with that kind of caveat, let's get into the passage itself, the content, because it's in the content of the passage that Moses accomplishes his goal. Our passage can be divided up into three sections. First, there's the chaos of the world, which does something for our story. Every good story has to have tension, right? Has to have some kind of conflict going on. And we find that tension in the first couple of verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, or it was empty, in other words. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Out of the gate, Moses says, Israelites, Marduk, I don't care what their stories say, Marduk did not create the universe by fighting and warring with other lesser gods and then end up creating the land and the sea and blah, 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 blah. It wasn't Marduk, guys, no matter what the Enuma Elish says. It wasn't raw like you've learned in Egypt. It wasn't, you know, some of the other gods that the Mesopotamian cultures talk about. The universe was created by, and he gives us the name of God, Elohim, the living God, who in chapter 2, he'll say has another name, Yahweh. He is the earth. It's formless, and it's void. It's chaos. It's a dangerous place, completely dark and uninhabitable. All that exists in this world is this dark, deep ocean, which in the ancient world was seen as the source of every kind of evil, whether it was a natural or supernatural evil. There's no life, but the hope of life is there in the presence of the Holy Spirit who hovers over the earth prepared to bring order out of the chaos. The tension of this first section is addressed within the second section, which begins in verse 3, goes through the verse 31, and it's a beautifully composed narrative 
has all kinds of poetical and metaphorical and anthropomorphic elements to it that are showing us how God brings order out of the chaos to communicate God's power and his intentionality in creation. Moses uses the biblical number of perfection, the number seven and its multiples. So for example, verse one, if you go to the Hebrew language, you look at verse one in the Hebrew language, it is seven words. If you go to verse two, it is 14 words, right? Um, The creation account covers seven days, seven times the phrase, and it was so, is used. Seven times it was good or very good is used. 21 times, seven times three, we have the words heaven and we have the word earth. 35 times, seven times five, we have the word Elohim. And then to beginning in verse three, we see a phrase that will occur exactly 10 times, a number that represents completeness and fullness. Just as God gave the Israelites 10 commandments that would inform them how to live their lives, God will speak and bring about his creation with 10 commands. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be light. And God said 10 times, it will occur repeatedly. The word of God will go forth and with his commands, through the power of his word, his will is accomplished. Richard Pratt writes, God's mere word brought magnificent order to the world. Unlike many of the mythological gods from other cultures, the God of Israel faced no struggles and no battles as he created. He simply spoke, and the world took its proper order. Beyond this, God's spoken word displayed his powerful wisdom. God put the world into the order that seemed best to him. God's creative activity in verses 3 to 31, they mirror the structure of verse 2, where we are told that the world is without form and it is empty. And so what we begin to see in the first three days, God addresses the formlessness of this world by creating domains or spheres within his creation. God addresses it by erecting the domain of light and darkness, a sky that divides the waters above and below, and then land that grows up out of the water. And then in the second set of three days, God addresses the emptiness of the world by filling these new domains. He puts the celestial bodies in the sky or in the, in the heavens. He, he puts birds in the sky and the fish in the ocean. And then on that dry land, he fills it with animals and with humanity. He does all this by the power of his word, for he alone is the creator. And it all belongs to him. The psalmist tells us, the Lord merely spoke and the heavens were created. He breathed the word and all the stars were born. For when he spoke, the world began. It appeared at his command. And then in the third section, the creation story comes to an end with a picture of perfect peace. 
There's no longer formlessness and emptiness. There is form and organization. The chaos has been filled and organized. And we read in verse two of the second chapter, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed that seventh day, that Sabbath, and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These questions are important for us to ask the passage. But the last question is also equally important. It's the question that we ask a lot around here because just getting truth is not the objective. To become intellectually smarter is not the goal. It's to be transformed by the word of God. So our final question is as important as all the other questions. What's that final question, church? So what? That's right, so what? What is God saying? What, did he, what was God saying to those Israelites? What is God saying to his people here in the 21st century in this passage? At the very least, we need to hear this account, this, essentially this sermon from Moses as the Israelites would have heard it. They had been raised in this environment where fear was a commodity, and this fear was linked to the gods of of Egypt and Canaan and Babylon, these pagan gods, the sky, the stars, the moon, the suns, the animals, the plants, the earth itself, these are their false gods. And Moses says, mm, no, they aren't gods at all. God just created them with his word, the power of his word. He spoke them in existence. And think about it, God spoke those things into existence, but Israelites, men and women of God, he took the time to design you and give you the dignity of his image. He did something with you. He invested us with an, a dignity that even the stars of the universe do not possess. He spoke them into existence. He came and he created us out of the dust of the ground. So why should we fear any of the gods of this world, whatever form they may take? The gods of this world have no claim on this world. They are false gods. Everything in this universe, it's gods. It all belongs to him. He is the sovereign creator of it all. And so even now, with some of us this morning, there is fear, and there is anxiety, and there is worry in the hearts of many this morning. Some of you, you're concerned with this coming election, right? We worry about the person who will sit in the Oval Office. Will this person make wise decisions? Will this person embrace an ideology that perhaps reshapes the freedoms that we have enjoyed as Americans for generations? Will this person worship himself and his reputation at the expense of American people? Will this person work to bring about God's justice and mercy and grace to our society and to the people who maybe have not yet fully tasted it? To these fears, Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God delights and bringing peace out of chaos. 
He's so powerful, he can bring peace even out of the chaos that emanates from Washington, D.C. How about that? That's <laughs> how powerful God is. But now for some of you this morning, the chaos, the fear, the anxiety, the concern, it's even more fundamental. You look at your life and you don't like what you see. You look at your life and you've been searching for answers. You've been searching for peace. You've been searching for meaning and purpose. Yet all the things that you have tried, which you might begin to realize, are nothing more than the false gods of this world. They take the form of money and prestige and popularity and sex and recreation and luxury. Now all the gods of this world, you've tried them and you've come to realize that you are empty this morning. You're empty like that primeval world in Genesis chapter 1. And the good news to all of you who are feeling these kinds of things this morning, whether it's because of an election or your spiritual walk or whatever it may be that's going on in your life, the, I want to point you to the truth of the gospel this morning as we close out. The Apostle John, in his gospel, begins by directly quoting and mimicking Genesis chapter 1. He says, in the beginning, the world, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believe him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or a plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and he made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. The perfect ideal world of Genesis 1, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, is going to be corrupted in Genesis chapter 3. Sin will introduce an even greater and more harmful form of chaos and darkness into our world because the fruit of sin is eternal separation from God. But our triune God the same God in Genesis 1 who said, let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons sends the second person of that Godhead, Jesus, to earth. And he takes on flesh and he dwells among us and he lives that life and dies the death that we deserve so that once and for all, chaos and darkness can be eradicated and all who believe in him can enter into his eternal Sabbath rest. And so for 
all of you this morning filled with fear, for all of you who are looking for answers, for all of you who are feeling insignificant and within the expanse of the cosmos looking for meaning in your life, our Lord Jesus Christ offers you perfect peace and rest. And if you don't know him, I want to encourage you this morning. Come see me after the message at the close of the service or come over to our spiritual care area where we will have people who will pray and talk with you. Heavenly Father, may you spread your peace in our lives and in our hearts. May you do a work of redemption and restoration in our community, in our city, in our nation. But Lord, even more importantly, would you do it in the individual lives of those who are here and who are listening this morning. Father, for the believer who already knows you, may we rest in your sovereign control. This universe completely belongs to you and you, you control all of it. It is your creation. We need not fear. We need only rest in you, Lord Jesus. And for the one who does not yet know you, may even today you plant within them a yearning desire to know you, Lord Jesus, as the creator God that you are who can bring peace into the chaos of their life through your good news. In your name I pray, amen.